You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. My name is Diana Moxon. Today on Speaking of the Arts, we are going to immerse ourselves in the world of music and musical theatre. Later in the show, we'll be welcoming back Ed Hansen and Audra Sergal to talk about two events they're involved with, Cabaret for a Cause, which is hopefully on this weekend, and the Sinatra Supper Club on January the 19th. But first, we welcome to our compact and bijou speaking of the arts studio the director Kay Cook and actor Julian Foley who are here to chat about Columbia Entertainment Company's new production of Peter and the Starcatcher which opens next Thursday Kay and Julian welcome to the show good morning thank thank you you. for having us I'm glad it isn't snowing yet so I get to do my show (laughs) without the worry of snowpocalypse now I have to (laughs) confess I had not heard of Peter and the Starcatcher before despite the fact as I learned that it actually won ten, uh, five Tony Awards back in 2012. It was a huge hit. It is an unusual production in that despite its multiple scenes from Victorian London to the high seas and a tropical island with sea battles and hurricanes and ships being destroyed, cliffs and mermaids and a giant crocodile, there are, in fact, no big sets or big effects. Relatively few props and it is instead... A feast for the mind's eye, as the playwright Rick Ellis said. So the New York Times review, they said, Peter and the Starcatcher sustains a breathless air of adventure and a cocky confidence in its powers to enchant that elude most family-orientated spectacles now on Broadway, including hits like Wicked and Mary Poppins. So Kay, tell us first about the story that unfolds in Peter and the Starcatcher. Well, the story, very traditionally and briefly, is the story of Peter before Peter Pan. It is similar to what um, Julian has uh, has talked about in other forms, uh, what Wicked is to Wizard of Oz. And so we find out how Peter Pan gets his name, where he comes from, uh, what happens, who becomes Hook, who is not Hook in our play. Um, how the mermaids came to be, all of this wonderful story and adventure. And it starts off, indeed, on the high seas with a boat race between two ships headed for the island of Rondoon with trunk of what we think is the queen's treasure. God save her. God save her. (laughs) Yes. Indeed, God save my queen. Um, And... um, hilarity ensues and that's the whole first act and the second act they have made it to the island they have been shipwrecked and now what happens on the island and you are indeed right we have virtually no set uh it is all up to our imagination much as toddlers and young children play and put the colander on their head and hold up the spoon for the sword and tie a shirt around for a cape, we are storytellers and we are telling the story in much the same fashion. Like getting a toy for Christmas and throwing the toy away and playing with the box. Absolutely. We are playing <laughs> yes. with the box the entire time. Yes. Now it starts off, it's Victorian London, so it's a reign of Queen Victoria rather than my current Queen Elizabeth. And uh, so the first scene, you mean you're still kind of in, in London, are you? We are on the docks. <laughs> And the ship is about to leave. Yes, it's 1865, but they take a lot of liberties. So even though it's 1865, we have references to Michael Jackson, <laughs> uh, Cadillac Escalades, Can You Hear Me Now? I'm, all of these popular <laughs> things are in the story as well. It, it's quite um, a, an adventurous dialogue. There are at least no smartphones because the play was written in 2004. So we are shy. (laughs) You're right. You're right. And tell us a little bit about the other characters that we meet right there at the beginning. Lord Astor and his daughter Molly are star catchers. And the story centers around Molly being an apprentice star catcher. 
and I won't give it away, but we find out she really is a character in Peter Mm -hmm. Pan later on. But she is the star catcher. They are an English family. And the nanny, Mrs. Bumbrake, who also comes with them. And then on the two ships, the only real person in the play is uh, Robert Falcon Scott, who really was a British explorer and found the Antarctic. Am I right, Julian? Captain Scott. Captain Scott, the Antarctic. And then there are pirates and sailors and... All sorts of people. And at this point, our hero, who in the play is called Boy, but who will become Peter, um, he is an orphan. Yes. And he and some fellow orphans have been put onto a ship, kind of sold to the ship's captain to be taken to the island of Rundoon, where life is not going to be good for them. Correct. They don't know that. But that's what has happened. So they are boys who are lost. Now you can pull that together (laughs) and look ahead and see what's going to happen. But they are boys who are lost. And they are boarded upon a ship called Neverland. And they are racing with a ship called the Wasp, which is captained by Captain Scott. And the captain of Neverland is a nefarious gentleman called Slank. Bill Slank. Yes, he is. <laughs> no good. Absolutely no good. Horrible man. And Molly is boarded upon Neverland with Captain Slank. Mm-hmm. And her father, Lord Astor, is aboard the Wasp. And we know pretty early on, it's not giving the story away, that there are two trunks. One trunk contains the Queen's treasure and the other trunk is a decoy trunk. And the Queen's treasure trunk is supposed to be with Lord Astor and Captain Scott upon the Wasp, the fastest ship. And Molly is supposed to have the decoy trunk with the nefarious Captain Slank. However, there is a switcheroo early on and the story unfolds from there. Right. All causes all sort of havoc (laughs) because Slank switches the trunks because he wants the treasure on his ship. He suspects that there's yeah, something that he wants in that trunk. Now, there is also a third ship. And, Julian, this is where you come in. So uh, the third ship is the pirate ship that has um, heard that there is treasure to be had. Well, in the play, they oh. took out the third ship. Oh, mm-hmm. the play mm-hmm. and the book are different. Yes, right. the play and the book are different. Metaphorically so, speaking. So thank goodness I didn't have to come up with a third ship. Two, two ships is plenty when you have no set. Um, well, and, you can have as many ships as you want when you have no set. <laughs> so we have two ships. So it's just the Wasp and the Neverland. Okay, and so Julian, now yes. you, uh, you are the pirate and you are no stranger to playing pirates or no. Peter Pan because you were Captain Hook in a Pace Youth Theatre production at Jesse Hall a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. But this time around, you play Black Stash, mm-hmm. the most feared pirate captain on the high seas, and also a very funny chap, as it turns out. So yeah. tell us about... Hence his facial hair. I was going to working <laughs> on the... I was going to say, you have a fine... Well... <laughs> He's been working on the uh, role mustache. for a little while. <laughs> That's kind of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I think that uh, Blackstash thinks he is the most feared on the seas because his aspirations are to become the greatest villain of all time. But he's a buffoon. <laughs> and so, you know, that's part of where the hilarity comes through is this sincerity of him thinking that he is so terrible and and everything. But uh, at the end, you could definitely see the transition of him becoming Hook, but you don't quite get to see that. It's getting you ready to go see Peter Pan, <laughs> the the musical Peter Pan. So how, so um, because I've read the book and not the play, mm-hmm. remind me how... He gets to be on a ship. Well, we are part of uh, the crew on the Wasp. You've infiltrated the Wasp. Yes, and we overpower Scott, and then the Wasp becomes a pirate ship. Okay, okay. And uh, tell us a little bit about Stash. What what is the fun part about playing him? 
Oh, what isn't the fun part about playing <laughs> stash? Well, I would say that actually getting to utilize my right hand is one of the things. Um, <laughs> so, um, because he has two hands in it, this show, right. yes, and that—that's what the the whole thing's leading up to. Uh, finding out how Captain Hook lost his hand, but I, I would say that uh, one of the best things about being Black Stash is actually getting to interact with Clay Mitchell's character, Smee, and getting to see the beginnings of their relationship and the whole, one of the shticks that is in Peter Pan that's also in this show is Hook will say something or Stash will say something and he says it incorrectly and Smee corrects him and then <laughs> it, it's it, it's really funny. So so Stash is a, a bit of a malapropist, right? He kind of gets his words muddled up. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. Do you think? Do you have the best lines in the play? Uh, well, there's certainly a lot of fun. I don't know. You know, to say to say some are best would be to invalidate others, but they are certainly a lot of fun. The, the language in the play is very complex. It has been quite challenging to get it all correct. Um, and we've all had to go and look up some of the words <laughs> and references. The ship terminology and things have been quite fun to put together. Yeah, you, you see uh, part of the ship called a futox and you know I'm reading that oh my gosh can I say this? <laughs> you know it just sounds odd you know. <laughs> but it's now our favorite word. <laughs> that is not an English word. It is the, it is the beam in the bottom of the hull of a ship. Oh. And so we thought they had made it up, but I looked it up and no. And so we we have futtocks. I mean, it's just a wonderful word. <laughs> so as you said, it is uh, the play is a reinvention of the origin story of Peter Pan, mm-hmm. um, a different version of how Peter becomes Peter Pan than that told by J.M. Barry in his 1911 book called Peter and Wendy. And this book, Peter and the Star, or the book Peter and the Star Catchers, was written in 2004 by Dave Barry, no relation to J.M. Barry, and Ridley Pearson and was turned into a play by playwright Rick Ellis in 2007 and that was done at the behest of Tom Schumacher who was the president of Disney Theatrical mm-hmm. Productions but rather than create an over-the-top Disney show the producers Roger Reese and Alex Timbers instead kind of put together whatever props they could get their hands on mm-hmm. a rope a few sticks and planks, a ladder, a couple of buckets, steamer trunk, and a stuffed bird. And it is this sparseness of stage which really went on to define the production. So, Kay, from a directing point of view, talk about the staging and the challenges, or maybe the freedoms, of relying on the imagination of both the ensemble cast and the audience. The whole show is 12 people on stage, but many, many, many characters and parts. The characters play their main role. They play islanders. They play sailors. They play doors. They play walls. <laughs> they uh, play yes. a boxing ring. And so one of the challenges was, okay, I've got all of these people talking. Who is left to make this part of the set? And as a result, most of the people are on most of the time. And so that was a little challenging in in making sure we told everything correctly. And I kept looking back saying, are they sure they did it with 12? Because Mm -hmm. I really could use a few more people here sometimes. Um, And so that was quite a bit of fun to figure out how to be the inanimate objects as well as the characters. The one thing that's interesting about this play opening for me is that it actually opened at the La Jolla Playhouse before it went to Broadway. I'm from La Jolla. And so that happened just down the road, right mm-hmm. before I moved to Missouri. Did you see it? I didn't. <laughs> what a mistake. <laughs> what a mistake. I should have gone. Um, but I didn't see it. And I remember hearing about it, but I didn't have a chance to go see it. And now I'm really lamenting that sh- theater choice. <laughs> well, I think from what I read that from, from La Jolla to when it went to New York, I think they rewrote 75% of it. So it, it changed quite a lot between La Jolla and New York. So you might have been even more bamboozled. <laughs> I may have been. I it. may have really not <laughs> known what to do. No, it's been quite fun and it's been quite collaborative. So, you know, when we get to a problem, it's not just me saying, okay, you do this, you do this. It's how, do, how can we do this? How can we make this happen? And the cast has come up with just as many creative ideas as I have as far as how are we going to show the audience what we mean here. And it's funny the whole time. So it's, it's really 
been a lot of fun to put together. In a note to directors producing the play, there is a comment to remember, the joy of this piece is in playful collaboration with your cast. Let their imaginations and yours guide your discoveries of fresh and clever storytelling. So I wondered if you Mm -hmm. have any unique moments in your production that were really dreamt up by the cast. We have several. We have our our Dodo poster, which not only was the idea dreamed up by the cast, but our our Peter drew it, and it's amazing. (laughs) Yes. um, Because Parker is quite an artist also. We have a lot. We, um, the tea that we do during, halfway during oh. the hurricane. We stop the entire hurricane and they have tea because <laughs> it's time, as you must know, Diana, exactly. nothing, nothing stops. No, tea um, and biscuits. Yeah. And, and we, we take time out for tea. Um, we put that in. I don't think I had seen that in another production. <laughs> if, you, if you have a chance to see different productions, it's almost like you're looking at different plays because oh, yes. it is so interpretive on what you can do because you have so little to work with. So it's really a lot of fun to play and play and play and then say, keep that one in. That's it. We're going to do it that way. And um, we're, we're having a wonderful time. <laughs> so like you said, you have 12 actors, but they play more than 100 roles. And they can come back. They never really leave the set, but they, they leave their character and then they become a rope or a piece yes. of, of, of decking or whatever else it is. They do. How do you keep a track of... Like who's supposed to be what? Like oh no oh, no 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 you're not you're not Smee now now you're a box. I mean that just must be <laughs> or a or a fern. How um, do you track of who is who is doing what? They they're they change physically. So if they're in character, they have one physical stand maybe and when they're a door they are a little stiffer hopefully <laughs> they're wearing the same outfit they're wearing the same outfit every but nobody really changes uh, we add things and take things off because uh, they are mermaids halfway through and so they don mermaid outfits um you want to miss that yeah you don't want to miss that that's <laughs> hysterical um julian as a mermaid is is just a, one, a, a wonderful thing to see um but it, it is through speech and changing physically and working together. They couldn't do it alone. Um, but working together, you will believe it. And what's unique about this is the storytelling type of theater is that there are narrators. Mm-hmm. And the narrators will actually tell you, and now they're walking along the hallway, and all of a sudden you will see the hallway mm-hmm. as the actors become the hallway. So the narration helps also. But um, you'll tell. It, it, they're and good. so the actors are also doing the narrating, so they've also got that role as well. As That's it. It's about okay. everything. That's it. And so some of them have to change from from one accent. Our islanders have, uh, I gave them Italian accents, much to their dismay. Um, but, but they, you know, so they change. They can't have the Italian accent with their narrator or something else, and... It's it's been tough, but very satisfying, and they're doing a terrific job. I was I was going to ask you about accents. That, um, you know, most of the characters were written with British accents. You know, posh ones for Molly and Lord Astor and Mrs. Bumbrake, less articulate ones for the sailors. So, did you did you opt for British accents, or can they do it in their um, normal voice? Um, we have some. But we don't have everyone in accent. But Aster and the nanny have the posh British accents. Um, the pirates sort of are have their pirate <laughs> accent. The natives have Italian. And then the rest, no, we, we opted for the American accents. Um, there is so much language and so much to hear. And we want to make sure nobody misses a word. Right. I'm always glad when um, people don't do English accents. <laughs> Even though we have the wonderful Paula Van Landingham here in town, who is fantastic at English accents. We do. Uh, one of the joys of this is that it's a little bit of a caricature. So are our accents perfect? <laughs> they are definitely not. Um, they but you are weren't a, going for that. <laughs> no, we weren't going for that. It's a, it's a little overdone. It's, again, a little like four-year-olds pretending to be British or pretending to be Italians. <laughs> there is that element of playfulness to it, as opposed to something serious where, yes, I would definitely want every word said exactly right. correct. So, no, these are broad interpretations. <laughs> now, Julian, the actor Christian Boyle, 
uh, Christian Ball, sorry, who played yeah. Blackstash in the Broadway production, he described Peter and the Starcatcher as a show of found materials and unbridled creativity. It's sparse. People in a space creating magic around you instead of the magic being mm-hmm. shoved down your throat. Mm-hmm. So this is a very physical production for all the actors. How uh, did you prepare for that? Oh, uh, I didn't. <laughs> that, <laughs> the result being me laying sore on a couch each night. Um, so what... Yeah, I mean, it's it just all about practicing and just going and doing it again. And luckily, it's not thrown on you in just one big lump. You know, you get to practice. And but stuff. it is a workout. It, it is. You know, now that we're at the point of actually doing the full run over and over and over again, it is. It's quite quite a workout. <laughs> and, and they do. They dance. I mean, it is a play, but there is some music. There is a dance. And we had the wonderful Adam Brutsky come in and do our fighting I wondered. Scenes. I was going to ask you whether he'd come of in to do course, the fight scenes. Of course. I call Adam. I've worked with Adam before. And I said, Adam, we need you. Um, and But again, and most of it is comical. So Julian and Robert do a boxing match halfway through as the two captains of the ship and you can almost see the little yellow birds circling their head. I mean, it's very comical boxing but huge and big and very physical and it's a lot of fun. It's 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 mm-hmm. tough. It's a tough show. It really is a tough show. It's a big thing to take on. It is. You it know, was, at one time, it's like there's not much to it in terms of sets. You're not building huge, elaborate sets. But on the other hand, everything else then comes down to you and the actors. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and this is not my normal fare. I'm usually a music man, bye-bye birdie, hello dolly type director. <laughs> and so I got this and went, oh, my goodness. But it's sure been challenging and rewarding. And I think we turned out a great show. Now, there are only two female presenting roles in the play, Molly and her governess, Mrs. Bambrake. But in the Broadway production, Celia Keenan-Bolger, who plays Molly, was the only female in a cast of men. But the producers encourage non-traditional casting. So uh, what did you end up with and what discussions did you have about casting for the play? Our Mrs. Bumbrake is indeed a woman, Enola White, and she does a, a terrific job. Ted is also played by a female. We really didn't go in with it with any preconceived notions. And so we have a mix of characters who identify a mix of ways, and everybody is, uh, works together and in harmony, and it's a wonderful thing. Now, going back, you talked about music. It is a play with music as opposed to being a musical. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I can work without Ross and Pierce and, my, and some people up there in the pit. So, yes. And as well as the score and the, and the musical numbers, there are lots of sound effects from firing cannons, thunder, screeching cats, chirping birds, dripping water. Talk a little bit about the soundscape and, and how you put all that together. It's amazing. There are more little doodads mm-hmm. up there for them to play with. I, and they have all these names that I do not know what they are. Um, but it is quite challenging. And they are almost a character in the play as well. Oh, yes. Because the timing that we have had to do and pause for this sound, rush through this sound, etc. It's, um, it's another character. Now, can you get, do you get a DVD of sounds from the production when you buy the script, or is it up to you to... No, you do not. <laughs> <laughs> Find all your own sounds. And we mm-hmm. finally decided that the best fart sound, which was very important in the play, <laughs> um, that our Peter Pan makes by putting our hands up to her face, as most young boys maybe know how to do very well. And so uh, <laughs> right on stage there when we need it, we just have yep. Parker make the fart sound. <laughs> it, it just works out. So it is. It seems like it because the book was written kind of as a children's book. It seems like it's a play for children, but there's, there's a lot of magic in it. But also a lot of adult sense of humor. Not not you know R-rated, but just things mm-hmm. that adults. A bit like Harry Potter, things that adults will find funny that might go over the heads of children. So who are you expecting kind of the most reaction from in terms of your audiences? What do you um, think, Julian? I don't. I don't know. I think that there's things that I think little children will be sitting in their seats and laughing and falling over, and then <laughs> I, I expect the exact same result from my mother. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think the reactions will come in different places. Right. The sword fights and the, and the action maybe are more for the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, th- this would be, I'd say, rated PG. It, it, we call it the adult prequel to Peter Pan. <laughs> 
um, for any discerning parents who are very strict, we, we do say a couple things, nothing terrible. Mm. Um, there are two moments of violence that are not comedic, just to establish what a horrible life he had as, a, as an orphan. And um, we do give the croc the finger. Um, <laughs> but, but for the most part, I think it's just fine for, for young people. And um, the reactions will come in different places. The references mm-hmm. that maybe the adults will get that the kids don't get. And vice versa. There was something about a song that I just figured out the other day. That the, my younger cast members had to tell me why that was funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Because I didn't get it. Right. <laughs> so remind us of dates, times, and tickets, etc. We are, uh, tickets are on sale now. We open on Thursday, January 17th and play for three weekends. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights are at 7.30. Sunday matinees at 2 o'clock. Our adult tickets are $14. It's $12 for seniors 16 and up. Students and children and Thursdays we have a special and everything's ten. Ten dollars. So even opening night. Even opening mm-hmm. night. So uh, we hope all the snow is all gone and everybody can come out and see us. It really is fun family entertainment. Mm-hmm. And you can buy tickets directly online from cectheatre.org. Yes, I and do that's believe. theater spelled your way. Oh good. C-E-C-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org and you can buy your tickets online and you can buy them at the door. Fantastic. Well, I am looking forward to coming and seeing Peter and the Star Catcher. Um, I think it's going to be very funny. I'm excited to have read the book, but even though I know that the play is quite different (laughs) than the book. So I do encourage everybody to go and see it. Thank you so much the director Kay Cook and actor Julian Foley. Thank you. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Their production of Peter and the Star Catcher opens at Columbia Entertainment Company next Thursday and will run for three weekends through February the 3rd. Do bring your imagination with you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after the break, we'll be back with Ed Hansen and Audra Sergal. Don't go away. It's time to go back to Speaking of the Arts with Diana Moxon. Oh, it's all hilarity in the studio as Ed falls onto a chair that collapses underneath him. Anyway, welcome back to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And to my next guests, the mellifluous... Audra Sergal. <laughs> the dashing Ed Hansen. That would be me. <laughs> and as a surprise, the gorgeous Rashara Knight. Hello. <laughs> Who all have overlapping events coming up this weekend. And next, hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. So since uh, we last met, which was what seems like about two days ago, <laughs> Ed, you have jaunted off to the Bahamas and returned sporting a... A relatively healthy glow. A, a healthy glow, and I did promise to show you tan lines <laughs> if we go off the air for a little bit. I just I don't want your your reaction to my tan lines broadcast. Or maybe not as impressive as I was hoping. <laughs> and Audra, you've been toiling over a hot cabaret. Yeah, I've just had a cold oh, for four weeks. So I'm um, so sorry. Hands up, who's been wearing the lucky pants? <laughs> 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 I think Ed has had his lucky speedos on. (laughs) Oh, I wouldn't say that. (laughs) I just just did. So we have two events coming up about which you are both here to elucidate us. Ed, you have your annual Sinatra Supper Club fundraiser on January the 19th at Talking Horse. And Audra, you hopefully have cabaret for a cause on tonight and tomorrow, weather permitting. Is there a snow date in case we are trapped behind too many snowflakes? Yes. Yes, and we were actually just sitting in the lobby discussing, like, should we go ahead and just call it? Or, But the snow dates will be February 1st and 2nd. Okay, yes. Good to know. Uh, at what point will you make a decision? 2.30 today. <laughs> okay. I want the snow. I mean, I understand that we all might need a break, you know, and so it's like cancel all the world. Snow's coming. Let's see. But not the fun stuff. I know. Like like cabarets. We don't need a break from cabarets. No. So I want to see a snowflake before we, we call it. But if, it, mm-hmm. if, if it's about safety, of course, we'll just Well, I noticed that the in. Art League has canceled, or postponed rather, their opening reception, which was due for tonight. But right now, the Blue Notes and Rose Music Hall are carrying on, but they're also going to take a call about 2.30. Okay. So we'll see how well, we're it goes. Gonna, yeah, yeah I'm, I think Roshar and I are both like, let's just see. Let's we're make it. We out. need a snowflake. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I thought we'd start off 
with a little Sinatra quiz, mostly for Ed. No. But Audra and Rochelle, feel free. She at did least, this last year. Please to feel free to. Oh, did he? Did you? Did. I, did, I wasn't here last year. Well, somebody tripped me. Up. Oh, must be Monica. Well, hopefully then you've. I'd only your had one cup of coffee, and I don't think I was pretty very coherent that day. So, Rashara and Audra, feel free to buzz in if you know the answer. But if you are ready, please fingers mm-hmm. on buzzers. We'll start with an easy one. I'm so excited. Um, what was Sinatra's chart-topping duet with his daughter Nancy? Uh, I do know that, and that is. Um, I tell you what we can do. Uh, we'll do a little name that tune. Mike, can you play us the first, second, or two? It's the song I, I'm, I'm just trying to because I never sing it because I don't do a duet with myself. Um, I'd like to see you try. Me too. Yeah, I don't know that song. Yeah, it's, keep going a bit Say more, Mike. I love you. Do a bit more. I mean, I already got the tune in my head is the problem. <laughs> Something stupid. Correct. Thank you. Okay. You know what I was thinking? I was thinking to myself, you are so stupid. And then the title came. <laughs> and for a bonus point, can you tell me in what year it reached number one? Oh, what? <clears throat> 1957. Oh, gosh, no. Way more recently. 2000. No, I'm <laughs> 1969. Close enough, 1967. Okay. There you go. Okay, question number two. This is a more difficult one. Okay. That one was hard. What mm-hmm. is the correct order of Sinatra's four marriages? And I'll give you the first names. There's Ava, Barbara. I can't even remember the order of my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Ava, Barbara, Mia, and Nancy. In what order did they come? It's Ava Farrow, Barbara Marks, Mia... Sorry, Ava Gardner, Mia Farrow, Barbara Marks, and Nancy Barbato. Barbato. I think well, Nancy was first. Correct. And I think uh, Ava was second. You're doing very well. And Barbara was third, and Mia was fourth. All right until the last two. Mia, he what? divorced Mia. He was married to Barbara when he. Oh, Mia died. was like 12 when he married her. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> she got away with a lot of things. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He did. He'd probably be in jail now. Nope. Question number three. <laughs> what was the name of Frank Sinatra's last single released in 1984? Oh, wow. And I can tell you it tanked. I. It I, should have tanked. I would have had no idea. <laughs> and was largely ignored. It's probably not on your set list. It probably is not. Mm-hmm. It's called L.A. is My Lady. Oh, I know that song, and it is awful. <laughs> now for a, and it is not on my list. For a bonus point, what event was happening in 1984 that Sinatra hoped would adopt his song? Was it the Olympics? It was. It was the oh. L.A. Summer Olympics. He hoped that they would take so you up his born song. Yet, probably. I was totally born. Yet. I was totally born. I was eight. <laughs> totally born. Just born. Okay. Question number four. I guess I think you'll know this one, Ed. What phrase is imprinted on Frank's tombstone? He did it his way. No, that's what everybody thinks. Oh my gosh! That's what was life. It? No. Bashara? Oh, I, I don't have any idea. Fly, fly me to the moon? <laughs> it is the best is, is yet, yet to, to come. come. Ah, the best is, is yet, yet to come. come. And babe, won't it be fine? <laughs> Bonus point. Keyword. Where is Frank interred? I would hope in a casino somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> in my heart, Diana, in my heart. I'll give you that, Ed. It's actually Desert Memorial Park in Cathedral City, California. But Same thing. Yes. Okay, final, final question. Uh-huh. All Blue Eyes is one of Frank's monikers, but Blue Eyes are actually not that old. For roughly how many years have humans had blue eyes? bit of a tangent here. Since I have blue eyes, you'd think I'd know. But. <laughs> well, you will soon. That's so interesting. Yeah. I can't wait to know the answer. 10,000 years. Absolutely correct. You need to buy a lottery ticket. What prize did I win today? Almost everyone with blue eyes alive today can trace their ancestry back to one person who probably lived about 10,000 years ago in the Black Sea region. Scientists at the University of Copenhagen studying um, uh, genetics and eyes discovered that more than 99.5% of blue-eyed people who volunteered to have their DNA analyzed have the same tiny mutation in the gene that determines the color of the iris. We all had brown eyes. 
until 10,000 years ago. Wow. That is really fascinating. You're a Johnny come lately, Ed And you know what, Diana? You have way too much free time on you. <laughs> you know, I actually learned that at the Edinburgh Science Festival last year. That's that was, very yeah, cool. That's very wow. interesting, that is, isn't that it? That is interesting. Yeah. Audra, will there be an, a Frank and Nancy, a.k.a. Ed and Audra number in Cabaret for a Cause? No, but there are some duets uh, and a trio. So we have David McSpadden and Roshara Knight and Jordan Iskriggs doing the famous Easy Street Trio. Uh, from Annie and uh, Robin Anderson and Meg Crespi are going to sing Flight which is a piece by Craig Cornelia and then I'm really excited to hear it again Um, I wrote a piece for my musical called um, I Do and it's the uh, it's two gay male characters that sing at their wedding and Trent and Brandon are going to sing that as well. So I'm looking forward to hearing some duets. And then there's phenomenal soloists as well. So tell us about Cabaret for a Cause. The first one was last summer. Yes. How did it all come about? It really came about because I, with just sitting with singer friends over the summer with wine, uh, different places. <laughs> they said, you know, boy, I'd really love to sing, but I can't do a show, you know? And I'm like, I don't get to play shows either um, very often. And so as far as uh, cabaret shows. And so I thought, well, what if we just made a Facebook group and asked people if they wanted to sing? And the more we started thinking about it, we're like, well, it's a community event. Let's make it a fundraiser. And so it kind of just grew out or um, organically. And also my dad um, lives in Kansas City and goes to a group that's similar where it's cabaret for a cause, but it's not called that. It's called something else. Um, and had told me about it and was like, this might be something you could start. I'm like, yeah, I could, you know. So I called Roshara and said, hey, you want to help me do this? And so we've been just kind of co-conspirators um, with that. And yeah. This time, the money is going to Blue Ridge Elementary, which people have said, how are you giving money to an elementary school? How does that work? Yeah, that's the main question. Why? (laughs) So Blue Ridge Elementary is home to a lot of immigrant students, a lot of students of color, and and is one of the least funded schools in Columbia, um, just because of our districting districting issues. And so the, the students there, the faculty have put together a closet for the students to use. So that when the kids need something and they go to the teacher and say, I don't have pants, then they can go into the closet and they get to go shopping. Hmm. And they're just, they pick out what they want and they take it home and they have their needs met. Um, a lot of those kids don't eat unless they're at school. So it's gonna go to providing food in that closet as well. So the money's not going to Blue Ridge Elementary. It's mm, going directly to, the to this closet that the teachers manage um, that a lot of them are just paying for out of pocket. Mm. So um, our percussionist, Puck, is the music teacher there. And they they brought it to our attention and we're like, we can be helping kids directly get their needs met. Right. So the money will go directly to buying the supplies for that closet. And people can make donations of items too, right? And we'll post it on the Facebook page, but there's a picture of what Puck says that they need most often. Hmm. So the chorus just recently did a drive, and we're just going to continue to try and supply that closet since it goes directly to kids at no cost for to families that just they don't have the resources well that explains a lot yes i was thinking i've just paid my giant property tax bill why <laughs> are we giving money to an elementary school but there yeah. you go okay yeah it's you it's know for we, the closet we think of schools um i think of schools like mill creek for example that we just have there's just a lot more funding mm-hmm. you know um and i know eugene field and blue ridge and um benton are just it's a different it's a different environment Right. So just kind of, if the kids need the resources and the teachers are providing it, just wanting to go ahead and say, hey, let's go ahead and give that to you as a community. And Rashara, all of the ticket sales, <coughs> they go towards the, uh, the cabaret for a cause, do they? All of the, the amount? Yes, everything. Talking horses, donating everything. Yes, all, all the money that we make off ticket sales will go directly to to funding this closet. Yep. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Ed, are you singing in the cabaret this weekend? I am. I'm reprising, are you, are you reprising an old song that I did uh, in the show Man of No Importance. Uh-huh. several years back called Love Who You Love. The show's theme is resolutions. And so uh, if you think about people making New Year's resolutions, wanting to make a change for the better for themselves. And uh, this particular song is just talking about following your heart and uh, accepting yourself for who you are and being aware that other people are not like you and accepting them for who they are. Mm-hmm. No one is it's like you. It's a beautiful you. song. <laughs> well, I am an original. You are 100% original. <laughs> Let's have a little a musical interlude and listen to a very young Frank Sinatra, already with his amazing vocal sound. This is from his first 
first album, The Voice of Frank Sinatra, released in 1946 by Columbia Records. And this track is called You Go to My Head. Oh, I love this song. song. And I find you spinning round in my brain Like the bubbles in a glass of champagne You go to my head Like a sip of sparkling burgundy brew And I find the very mention of you Like the kicker in a julep or two The thrill of the thought that you might give a thought to my plea Cast a spell over me Still I say to myself Get a hold of yourself Can't you see that it never can be You go to my head With a smile that makes my temperature rise Like a summer with a thousand Julys You intoxicate my soul with your eyes Though I'm certain That this heart of mine Hasn't a ghost of a chance In this crazy romance You go to my head You go was Frank Sinatra with You Go To My Head from 1946 from his very first album The Voice of Frank Sinatra and amazingly we're just saying he was only 21 when he recorded that so Ed tell us what you've got lined up for next weekend's Sinatra Supper Club well um, this is kind of interesting I've got my song list with me and I'll dig it out (laughs) in a minute but in the past I've used a lot of tracks primarily because uh, that was going to be an easy way for me to independently work on the on the music I I play piano but I don't think of myself as a pianist per se I I like to really focus on the vocals and just Mm -hmm. uh, allow myself to just sort of relax into them and uh, so using tracks was was handy and then I had an an accompanist uh, Tammy Polson who worked with me for for a long time and accompanied on some of the slower pieces. But I've put a combo together for this year's Supper Club. So Gary Smith is um, going to be playing piano for me. Uh, now Gary is uh, just a master at improv and can look at a look at a score and then just kind of flesh it out. Mm-hmm. Jim Little on bass and Puck Miko is playing drums for me. And so mm-hmm. I've got a three-piece combo that'll be accompanying me all the way through the evening. So even if you've attended a supper club before, you're going to get a fresh new take mm-hmm. on a lot of this music because even though I'm doing some familiar pieces uh, and even pieces that I've sung with tracks before, I'm even having to learn you know, the song kind of over again because the arrangements are different and... Um, uh, the way this combo sounds sounds very different from the tracks. No strings, no horns. No strings, yeah, no horns. Right. It's very different. I know. 
Now, <laughs> now you've got, don't you do nothing like 40 songs? Is that right? I've trimmed it back a little bit this year because we're making some of the short songs that were only like two and a half minutes. We're making them a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to uh, spend a little bit of time before each song just kind of telling a little bit about the song. Mm-hmm. I'm opening the show with Night and Day, which is um, a piece that I've sung before, but it's kind of a classic Cole Porter. Mm-hmm. And Frank really was a, a, a very strong admirer of Porter's writing. Mm-hmm. Cole Porter was one of the few writers who wrote his own lyrics. And so the the marriage of of melody with lyric is so tight. And a lot of times I think to myself, you know, what are my favorite songs in the set? They're almost always the Cole Porter, Porter songs, <laughs> even though I've, there are a lot of other writers that are, that are represented. How extensive is your full Frank Sinatra repertoire? And how many songs do you just know off well, by heart? From memory, <laughs> I know about 50. That's uh, amazing. If I, if I have the scores in front of me, I can probably add another 50. Because, like, you go to my head, I don't, I don't sing that in my show. But I'm sitting here, you know, singing along with the song. So I know if I had the music in front of me and the words in front of me, I, I would be fine with it. And I was mentioning this to you while the track was playing. I grew up in a household that revered Sinatra, and we listened to a lot of that type of music. And so, you know, when I started thinking about putting a cabaret show together for myself, at first I thought, boy, I've got a lot of music to learn. And then I realized, you know, <laughs> a lot of, about 85% of the music was already in my head, and I just had to, I just had to bring it to the surface. Let's talk a bit about how difficult it is to sing Sinatra, although he rarely sang outside a single octave. Um, and he didn't go in for big vocal acrobatics, but his phrasing is legendary. Mm-hmm. How hard is that to imitate? Because it's so distinctive of his sound. Well, and that's one of the things when I, I bought a lot of, I, when I started working on this, I went and bought a lot of recordings so that I could uh, get an idea of the phrasing and um, uh, places where he does breathe, even in the middle of a sentence, and mm-hmm. then other places where he wants to carry through a phrase because musically... It, it takes the listener to a whole different level. So uh, breath control is everything. And I will tell you, uh, in the past, two and a half hours worth of singing, my throat is not tired, but my stomach is killing me just mm. because of the breath support that it takes <laughs> to do it. So uh, I feel like it's um, it's a challenge, but it's... It's uh, it's all part of making that music so wonderful. Sinatra credits the trombonist and band leader Tommy Dorsey, with whom he sang in the mm-hmm. early 1940s, as teaching him breath control. He'd have watched Dorsey sneaking little inhalations through a little pinhole in the corner of his mouth, kind of circular mm-hmm. breathing, I suppose. And once he had learnt to do that, he was able to sing six or even eight bars without taking an audible breath, which gave the music that flow. That must be... I mean, can you do that? Is that so impossible to do? Um, sneaking quick breaths is good. And then making sure that you're really using the microphone as your friend. So you're not you're not over-singing. To work. Uh, and you can really conserve the air. And you don't want to... You don't want to get to the point where you're running really low because then it takes a little bit of recovery time to get the get the muscles reset, abdominal muscles reset mm. for everything. I don't know if that's making any sense to your listeners now, but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> like, on, <clears throat> like on night and day, uh, there's one little spot where uh, he ends a phrase, um, night and day, night and day, under the height of me. Then you take your breath. Mm. There's an oh, such a hungry yearning, burning inside of me. So it's, it's knowing that that's going to happen and then not using up all your air and feeling desperate, you know, <laughs> when you want to do the carryover. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Let's listen to another beautiful track. This one is from 1967, which he recorded with Brazilian composer and pianist Antonio Carlos Jobim. And he was the man who put Bossa Nova on the international uh-huh. map. This is a track that I just discovered that is so was beautiful called Jinji. Sky so vast is the sky With faraway clouds just wandering by Where do they go? Oh, I don't know Don't know Wind that speaks to the leaves Telling stories that no one believes 
And that was a beautiful track from Frank Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Jobim called Jinji from an album from 1967. So um, let's talk quickly about um, dates and times. Ed, Sinatra Supper Club, go. Okay, so the Sinatra Supper Club is, um, I believe the doors open at 6.30, is that right? And, yes. and dinners start at 7. Uh, since I didn't plan it this year, I don't know any of the details. Thank you, Rashad. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a miracle. And uh, that's on the 19th. And then we have a, a backup uh, snow day of the 20th just in case uh, we get bad weather but I've looked at the forecast and next weekend is looking really good so it's Saturday the 19th right right mm-hmm. okay yeah. and uh, who's catering the dinner room 38 and, and it's a three course dinner three course dinner salad uh, entree uh, which is chicken piccata and then uh, like steak au pauvre. I mean, it's ooh, they do nice food. Delicious. And then uh, I believe they've got strawberry cheesecake mm-hmm. for the dessert. And mm-hmm. uh, there'll be a wine uh, and beer bar, cash bar available, and then uh, tea and coffee. But it's like two and a half hours of just listening to what we hope will be great music and, and and eating good food and meeting the people that are at your table and just having great conversation for the evening, which I don't think we give ourselves enough time. You know, so many people eat dinner in like 15 minutes and they're out the door and this is just designed to slow people down for an evening. So, Rashara, how have you set up... Are, are, there big, are they big tables? They're not intimate tables for two. Are they larger tables? How do you set up the room? Yeah, there'll be larger tables and um, we'll do kind of assigned seating for the evening and everybody will know where they're going to be placed um you know we'll turn we'll turn the entire theater into into a supper club is really what it what it'll be we'll we will remove all of the risers and stuff the the seating that's normally there and we'll sit down tables and it'll be dimly lit and (laughs) 
Ed will croon for you for two and a half hours while it's you eat delicious croon, food. It's fine. I was just telling Diana that that's kind of how I was born. Is that my mom listened <laughs> to my dad sing at a supper club in the sixties? Oh, mm. pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So who knows what babies will be made? <laughs> <laughs> Future jazz musicians. We also Future leave jazz. room. We also leave room for a dance floor, and so oh, for people that treat. like to get up and and just kind of sway and snuggle and cuddle. Me. It's, it's really fun. Dave McSpadden, that's for you. <laughs> and you'll be accompanied by a trio. Yeah. And then you have about 30 plus songs in the evening's repertoire. Right. Well, that sounds very lovely. And Audrey, you are tonight and tomorrow, weather yes. permitting. Yes. But if not, on February the 1st First and 2nd. Second. Second. Mm-hmm. And you'll take a call. So people should check the Facebook page this afternoon. They, they should check the Facebook page. And we have such an incredible lineup. I just, I can't stress enough how many of these singers are so phenomenal. And and that you're seeing them all in one place. Right. They're the people that would be the leads in the show that you go to see, and they're all in one place, and they're all singing um, their favorite literature that they pick. They picked for the show, so I think it's just you know, it's a it's a night a night of names, but it's also a night of community, and, and it's together. a night of different genres of music. It's oh, not all American all of it. songbooks. It's, yes, <laughs> it's not just American songbook. It is all of it. It's new musical theater, old musical theater, things you've heard before, and an original, you know, which is great. Great. Yeah. And that's at Talking Horse 32. Yes. And you have space for about 70, do you? Yes. Have? Okay, mm-hmm. 70 seats. And so keep an eye on the Facebook page this afternoon mm-hmm. or I guess call Talking Horse and they'll make a decision about 2.30, depending on whether we just get rain, a couple of snowflakes, or whether we get the full snow apocalypse. So there's a little rain out there. <laughs> just say it. So two fantastic events coming up. Sinatra Supper Club next Saturday on the uh, 19th of January. Mm-hmm. We're still in January, aren't we? And then also Cabaret for a Cause Resolutions, which hopefully will be tonight and tomorrow night. Thank you all so Thank much you. for Thank coming you. in. Always a delight and a great chance to listen to some Sinatra music. Yeah, too. Together, that was fun. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts and I've been talking with Audra Sergal, Ed Hansen and the lovely Rashara Knight. Thank you all so much for being here. We will go straight into our roundup of events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Columbia. And for those events this weekend, I would definitely suggest that you check with the organisations or the uh, venues to see if they're still on. So hopefully Cabaret for a Cause will be taking over the Talking Horse Theatre stage tonight and tomorrow to raise money for Blue Ridge Elementary School with an evening of musical cabaret entitled Resolutions featuring 20 musical theatre vocalists, performers and musicians. The evening performances will start at 7.30 and tickets are $15. The Columbia Art League has already postponed tonight's opening reception for their first show of the new year entitled Gluttony and that opening reception will now be on Saturday the 19th of January and it'll be from 6 to 8pm and that is free and open to all. Continuing the 5th annual Missouri Fest tonight at the Blue Note is the Missouri Blues Fest with guests Ina Cook, the Bel Airs, King Benny, Al Holiday, and the East Side Rhythm Band. That show starts at 8pm weather permitting and tickets cost $8. Over at Rose Music Hall tonight it's the Missouri Bass Fest with Section 8, Lucid, Pollux, Sound Effects and OC. The show at Rose starts at 9 and tickets are $8. In Jefferson City, the off-the-cuff improv troupe will be performing a fundraiser for Capital City Productions. Tickets for the dinner theatre are $38 and the doors open at 6. Saturday afternoon, again, check this one with Odyssey Chamber Music Series to make sure that's still on. But in collaboration with the Mid-Missouri Music Teachers Association, they will have their Kids at Heart, a children's concert, featuring music from St. Cian's Carnival of the Animals. The concert takes place at First Baptist Church at 3, but if you go early at 2, you can experience the instrument petting zoo. The concert is free, but donations are accepted. The Midmo chapter of Louder Than a Bomb, the largest high school youth poetry slam Slam competition in the world will be hosting Fine Lines, Spoken Word Performance and Art Showcase at the Jefferson City Miller Performing Arts Centre. And that event is from 12.30 till 3 tomorrow afternoon. Staying in Jefferson City, The Bridge hosts Almost Kiss and JCDC Saturday night. Doors open at 7 and tickets are $12. Saturday night at the Blue Note, you can check out the Missouri Hip Hop Fest hosted by Steady P. Their show starts at 9 and tickets are $7. And over at Rose Music Hall, it's the Missouri Stomp 
Stomp Fest with the K Brothers and the Ben Miller Band. Be there by 9pm and have $10 to hand. And Violet and the Undercurrents will be playing an unplugged concert at Ophelia's Flowers and that's Saturday at 8.30 and tickets are $10 on the door. On Sunday afternoon in the Museum of Art and Archaeology's ad hoc film series continues with a free showing of The Brother from Another Planet and that's at 2pm. Monday evening at the Boone History and Culture Centre you can hear the first of this year's Blind Boone Piano Concert Series with Coretta's Song, a concert of sacred music in the civil rights movement with the W. Crim Singers from Nashville, Tennessee and Brandon Boyd on the piano. The concert is at seven and tickets are 20 for adults and 10 for children aged 5 to 14. And while you're there, do check out the What is Columbia Photography Show, which is up until January the 27th. Wednesday afternoon, there is a reception at the Mildred M. Cox Gallery at William Woods University in Fulton for a show called Art from Garth Street, featuring two well-known Columbia artists, Dennis Murphy and Chris Murray. The reception is from four till six and it's free and open to all. On Thursday afternoon next week at Columbia College's Larson Gallery, there is a chance to see the famous centenarian photography of Anastasia Pottinger and a show called What Time Creates. The opening reception will be at 4pm. Thursday evening, is opening night for Columbia Entertainment Company's production of Peter and the Starcatcher. The show runs for three weekends with evening shows at 7.30 plus 2pm matinees on Sunday. Tickets are $14 and that's going to be a great show to go and see. And Thursday night, country artist Carly Pierce is at the Blue Note. Her show starts at 8pm and tickets are $15. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me Diana Moxon and my good friend and sound engineer Mike Hagan will be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.